Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Today on the Indo-Daily, the rules of war explained. On the real front line, Ukrainian forces have been battling Russian troops in Bakhmut for nearly a year. Neither side has won, neither has lost. With war raging in the Middle East and Europe, our media is full of scenes of horror. Bombed hospitals, dead children, families fleeing for their lives and endless human tragedy. Our heart, of course, stays with the victims. Our condolences to their families. But our emotions are, there is no way a war can be acceptable in the 21st century. Have the lessons of the 20th century been lost, or have we been turning a blind eye all along? Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Declan Power, security and defence analyst, to explain the rules of war. Declan Power, we've been hearing a lot over the last 10 days or fortnight about the rules of war. I suspect it'll come as a surprise to many people that there are any rules when it comes to war. I I would imagine that could well be the case, uh, Kevin, because the mayhem we've seen and and the the brutality that has been inflicted on many innocents on both sides of the equation. However, there there are rules uh, about war and primarily most of those rules are within a, a document enshrined by the what's called the Geneva Convention, which was created back in the 19th century to give some sort of set of parameters for nation states that were engaging in wars uh, with one another. And at that time, there was still a, a huge degree of chivalry with regards to war. Militaries were very structured. You had a very class-orientated system between officers and enlisted ranks, the soldiers who mostly do the the fighting and the dying. And that kind of drove the sort of values about primarily the duties of a nation state in general, and in particular, a combat force around the the protection of civilians. 19th century war, though, when you're saying these originated versus 2023, Mm. they're two different worlds. Have they been updated over the years? Have they allowed for technology? Have they allowed for, I suppose, the development of more rogue states as we've probably seen in the in the last while? 
Well, they have, but not alone that, but the Geneva Convention isn't the only game in town. You have a big body of international humanitarian law that looks at, again, the protection of civilians. The UN itself, uh, since the Brami report in the 90s, developed a whole concept of what became known as R2P, uh, responsibility to protect, so that the UN as an institution, and particularly UN uh, formations, military formations, regardless of what the mandate was that had them in a particular conflict zone, that this R2P doctrine meant that they had a responsibility to protect civilians. The provisional agenda for this meeting is protection of civilians in armed conflict. I invite the representatives of Algeria, Argentina, Armenia. What that Australia, led to then was that Austria, you would have, wherever there was a UN formation, POCs, protection of civilian sites, and people would flock to those areas. Indonesia, Islamic Republic of Iran, Israel. Italy. It was all great on paper, but I've seen it myself uh, at first hand in different parts of Africa. It would be messy business. What's a civilian site? I'm thinking hospitals, schools, am I right? Well, n- not as such. These would be people that were already after moving out of a conflict area and they were literally kind of camping in the beside a, a UN base uh, or if they could get into the UN base. But this would all then become constituent on the particular country that was manning that base. So in Ireland, it wasn't unusual in the 1980s and 90s when there were heavy bombardments of South Lebanon for members of the civilian population to sometimes end up in shelters on Irish bases. Uh, Now, that wasn't always entirely practical, but it did happen and it wouldn't be usual. And that was broadly falling in with the R2P doctrine. But not all countries would view it in the same way. And the Geneva Convention was more to do with battling forces of nation states. The humanitarian doctrine that became evolved through the United Nations was more about trying to protect the civilian element. And so fast forward to where we are today. If it's nation state versus nation state, well, you have some set of parameters that make sense. Doing something that seems to be a systemized approach to target civilians, that you have clear breaches of the the laws of war. Well, let's get into what exactly they are then. So obviously no targeting of civilians. That's pretty straightforward up front. Number one on, on the rule list, if you like. No torture or inhumane treatment of detainees. And that's probably relevant to what is happening in the Middle East at the minute. Yes, yeah, and not just the Middle East and not just at the minute. I would say that's been an issue going back to the 1960s, 1970s and probably beyond. And it's also an issue in terms of the more recent war in Ukraine as well. So, you know, there are documented episodes of maltreatment of prisoners from just not looking after their welfare because the the nation that takes the prisoners has a duty of care to ensure that they're housed properly, that they're fed properly, that their, their welfare is looked after. If they are legitimate combatants, if they're soldiers of an opposing army, then they're, they're not treated as criminals. So people will be familiar with films they've seen of prison camps and harsh though the regime may have been, they weren't being kept in cells uh, in the same way as, a, as prisoners would be. And Irish people are probably familiar with the, of a certain generation anyway. There were more angry marches today through the streets of Northern Ireland, marches in support of IRA prisoners. Some of those inmates are again staging hunger strikes to back their demands for recognition as political prisoners rather than common criminals. The hunger strike period in the 1980s where 10 men uh, from the provisional IRA and related organisations such as the INLA starved themselves to death for their right to wear civilian clothes because they wanted to be recognised as prisoners of war. Then there's the aspect of 
taking responsibility for the welfare of the civilians that either have been displaced or that are trying to exist in your area of operations. Uh, So the NATO doctrine, which is a doctrine that the Irish Defence Force operate under, has a clear set of guidelines under what's known as CIMIC, uh, Civil uh, Military Cooperation, uh, to allow for the militaries to engage with civilian communities. So the the civilian leaders uh, to assist with restoration of utilities uh, in their area, that's seen as part of their responsibility. So it wouldn't be just be a a high-blown notion that we will try and prevent um, suffering within the civilian community. There are actual teams whose job it is to reach out and liaise and work with the civilian community. So that's that's when it works well. And I've been involved in many exercises uh, that were conducted throughout Europe under the, the auspices of Exercise Viking, where European militaries, and indeed the US used to be involved in them as well, would run exercises where this kind of stuff would be wargamed, so to speak. But the Middle East and, and other areas, the problem comes up where you're not dealing with nation states, where you One protagonist is operating by a completely set of different rules to the other. And this is what we're seeing right now with Israel and Hamas, uh, in that Hamas, as we've seen, never had a rule book. And whatever um, notions of civility might have uh, been thought to exist with them have been shown to, uh, to be non-existent since their attack nearly a fortnight ago. Israel is expected to adhere to the rules of warfare and just the the, the conduct of, of democratic uh, and uh, nations, the civil conduct one would expect. And contrary to probably popular belief in Ireland and other parts of Europe, they, they largely do. But Israel is very clear and specific about the, the rules of war. So you don't target civilians. But if you are receiving fire or uh, you, you are coming, your people or your territory or your troops are coming under threat, uh, and that threat has been identified as being beside a, an identified civilian location, such as a school, housing area, or indeed a hospital, uh, you're, you're allowed to respond to the threat in a proportionate way. And this is where the debate comes in. No one expects an attack on a hospital. But it seems hundreds have been killed in a brutal assault. The facility in Gaza City is called the Al-Ali Arab, which is run by the Anglican Church, and much of it has been destroyed. Well, this reminds me, because I, I, I was actually in Gaza years ago, and I visited a UN facility. It was a, a water facility that was being built at the time, and right beside it, what was pointed out to me was the development of a Hamas training camp where they were running drills and there was people there and I have no reason to doubt that the people were, what they were telling me was what I was seeing in front of me. And that was the clear understanding that the local people had was the UN is building this water facility here. Hamas will build right beside it because Israel won't bomb a UN water facility. And therein is the nub of the problem, Kevin, because you're absolutely right. And for some time, not just Hamas have been engaged in those kinds of activities and, and not just using, you know, setting up firing points beside classically civilian infrastructure, but uh, stockpiling weapons, uh, engaging in uh, activities such as maybe tunneling underneath uh, an area like a school to connect in with, with a, a network. 
But this has also been done by Hezbollah in South Lebanon. Uh, and in the 1990s, when the Irish battalion were very active there, there was an agreement put in place, uh, the Oslo Agreement. Israel had been in and out of the, had invaded Lebanon a few times. And the problem was, as you say there, uh, Hezbollah would regularly set up firing points besides civilian areas. They, were, they would use civilian areas to stockpile weapons and you know, partially bullying people, partially cajoling them and whatever else. And a typical day would be that they would set up, sometimes beside a UN post, and uh, with a, a, a mobile rocket battery and fire the uh, salvo into, into Israeli territory. And of course, the Israelis would quickly uh, respond. And that's where a lot of innocent civilians lost lives and indeed a lot of Irish soldiers. Okay, so on one level, that's... Ex- Explainable for Israel. I'm not excusing it, but you mm. can see how you try to target something and civilians get hurt in the crossfire. Which, yes. Um, but the rules of war also say that you should provide safe passage for civilians to flee. The Palestinian community and supporters of Palestinians would say they have been locked in Gaza in good times and in bad. And there are very few good times for the people in Gaza. And right now they are locked in and there is no safe passage out for those who want to flee. That is true. And the Israelis would probably respond and say, we would like to provide safe passage for civilians to flee, but things are so muddled up and Hamas has become so intertwined with the civil population. And in fact, it's part of their doctrine uh, to constantly use civil society, be it to launch rockets from beside civil locations or to uh, embed themselves within civilian communities. Now, there's a bit of cynicism. Uh, There's a lot of cynicism. I was going to say the rules either exist or they don't. Well, tonight's bloodshed came after more than 600,000 people fled northern Gaza seeking safety. Many made their way south down the main highway. Some sought shelter in schools run by the United Nations. At least six people were killed this afternoon after an airstrike on one such shelter in Al-Maghazi. I'm not condoning what Israel uh, would be doing here. Uh, I think there are much better ways to do this. But they they would be making that argument, much like they make the argument that we're not targeting civilians, we are targeting the legitimate threat, but then they're using munitions that you know have a margin for error that will kill civilians in a built-up area. And you could argue, okay, we accept you're not targeting them, but you're being cavalier with their safety and lives. But to come back to another point that's that's important just in terms of the rules here and how we understand them, other countries around uh, the area too, they're not in a rush to um, have a deluge of civilians, of Palestinian civilians into their territory. And that's not, that doesn't uh, breach the public consciousness in the same way. And that's part of the problem. We're talking about places like Egypt. Egypt indeed and Jordan, Jordan. as well. And, and with some good reason in that they're thinking of the long term, the instability that this may cause. And I would add another element to this that we don't often think about is that the very episode you outlined there of a Hamas training camp beside a UN facility that's supposed to serve the civil community. In the international community, we should have been more stringent about this. We let things develop in such a way as to it be in such a situation that the Israelis now say they have no choice. I don't think it's, it's as stark as that, but, but we could have prevented this. And a simple example of that could be with regards to protection of civil society. When Yasser Arafat took the reins of the first Palestinian, uh, um, shall we say, iteration of statehood, the Fatah movement, which he led, became quite corrupt and they brutalized their own people. And yet they couldn't have survived without the support of the European Union because they held the purse strings. We could have 
forced the hand of Yasser Arafat to improve the uh, governance. Because what happened then was the ordinary Palestinians moved towards Hamas. They, they, in, in simple terms, uh, an honest extremist was more palatable than a corrupt moderate. Now, I'm not saying that's the only factor here, and I'm not trying to uh, let Israel off the hook with its policies as well, but it just shows you that if you're really serious about wanting to protect civilians, it has to start at a point before major conflicts erupt. Conflict management, conflict de-escalation requires you to try and horizon scan. Now, the, the biggest problem we have here with regards to application of a, a rules-based approach to this conflict is where you have so much emotion involved, you, you really need to be taken, if the Israelis wanted to be clever about this, they'd need to take a more con- counterintuitive approach. Because if they go into uh, Gaza, they will undoubtedly dismantle Hamas, but they won't have dismantled it for all time. They'll have dismantled it for at most a generation. And anyone who studies terrorism and counterinsurgency knows that the seeds are still there and the roots will, will grow again. So in terms of protecting people, um, you know, to try and get the Israelis to take the foot off the pedal. You've got to be able to say to them that there is a better way to dismantle, and that's where the international community come in. This is my question. If we have rules, who is the referee? Because we know, for example, we've had Joe Biden talk about the different teams in this and which yes. team was responsible for the hospital attack. We know that Ursula von der Leyen has got herself in huge trouble for being so straight behind Israel um, and and maybe not commenting on the wider picture in her initial comments at least. So who is the referee here if America and the EU are both backing Israel pretty much unequivocally? What's the consequences of breaking the rules? And therein lies the problem with the concept of international law and indeed the Geneva Convention. There has to be a method of enforcement. It seems to me that the the rule of law is a bit like an angel. Every time you declare you don't believe in angels, an angel dies. So when, when Boris Johnson or indeed anyone, says, well, you know, this constitutional rule, maybe next Wednesday I won't bother with it. Or, yeah, Parliament might pass a law, but I intend to disregard it. Uh, You know, a little bit of me dies in that moment because the rule of law is just a fiction that we all believe in. And if we believe that it's a good thing, um, then we have to also appreciate the fragility of the fiction. Now, the Geneva Convention was brought into play and, and, and quoted liberally in the end of the Second World War, for example. But, you know, you're talking about a situation where the victors enforce the rules there. Fast forward to where the UN, where we have a much bigger international civil society with organizations like both the UN and the EU. And you did see international uh, law applied in The Hague, where you have the International Criminal Court. But ultimately, for those things to work, you have to have a, an acceptance of it by the international community. And it seems that certain wars are more applicable for uh, those rules, or certain wars fit those rules. And that's because there is a, a continuity of agreement, whereas nobody's going to be able to drag Israel before the International Criminal Court if they don't want to go. Or Vladimir Putin. Well, exactly. I suppose the one thing is, though, Vladimir Putin knows that if he or any of his acolytes step outside Russia, they could well find themselves in front of the Hague at some point. Uh, the problem with the uh, the Israeli situation and uh, you know the whole situation in the Middle East is there there isn't a consistent uh, 
approach by the international community. And, you know, Israel has the backing of the United States, but also has significant backing around the world in understanding its its position. So there would be a very limited appetite, I would argue, for a variety of reasons uh, in the international community to be, see anybody from Israel be brought before uh, such a court. And probably part of that would be to the fact that the other side, there's no likelihood of anybody wanting to bring them uh, before such a court either. And so the argument would be, well, we're applying it to one side and not to the other. But then it becomes a circular argument because the attitude is we hold the Israelis to a, a higher standard of, of accounting. They're a legitimate democratic state. They're yeah, part could, of, you could argue that a, a legitimate state should be held to a higher account than terrorists. We, we, you know. I agree. I agree completely. And, and I think for Israel, if they were to kind of stand back and be counterintuitive and to think of the big picture and not let a emotional... Uh, um, com- communication and comprehension guide their thinking at the moment they would hold high moral ground and really the, the essence of this comes down to one thing the Israelis are trying to solve this problem with purely military means and it's, it was approaching this with hard-edged and securitized means that got themselves into this problem in the first place If they couldn't have the whole of Palestine and everything handed to them on a silver plate so they wouldn't have to do anything it couldn't be done we had to take it in small doses you can't move uh, five or six million people out of a country and fill it up with five or six million more and expect both sets of them to be pleased. One of the best ways to, to, de- to end the reign of Hamas would be to use a mixture of economic, rule of law and political means and give the Palestinian, try and create a situation where the Palestinian people had a better leadership that were more interested in some sort of detente. Uh, and then the Israelis need that kind of approach as well. Uh, they need to probably step back and remind themselves they're part of a rules-based order and restore their legitimacy on an international basis as well. But that's very hard to say when you've got such a visceral uh, set of elements going on where nobody is really interested in the rules of war. And uh, the biggest concern I have is because of the nature, the personalized and brutal nature of the Hamas attacks on Israeli civilians and innocents, that the Israeli state and forces are still saying that they abide by the rules. But I think at a psychological level, they're uh, thinking we will just, anybody who gets in our way, we will we will just smash them. We will push them to one side because the rhetoric about dehumanization is starting to become a bit more apparent than it was. People talking in terms of human animals and they're not applying that just to Hamas, they're applying it to the Palestinians in general. But when... Uh We talk about war crimes. We cannot forget that uh, the worst of crimes is war itself. Innocent civilians were living in these buildings. They were paying the highest price for a war for which they had not contributed at all. And this is something Everybody should remember everywhere in the world. Wherever there is a war, the highest price is paid by civilians. My thanks to Declan Power. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by D. Reddy, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips were from BBC News, CNN, Al Jazeera. Channel 4 News, RTE and the Irish Independent. 
If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel, 0818-715-715.